Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. That looks like little little shop of horrors. It's you totally, have a, a grabber, but it's I, all green on the end. We love the reacher grabbers now, and I'm never going without them. <laughs> uh, reacher grabbers and chamber pots uh, are my new. <laughs> I'm instantly 88 years old and love it. Um, you just need to retrofit the that chair that you're in to hold the chamber pot, and you'll never have to go anywhere. Never have to go anywhere. Hi, Todd. Hi, how are you? I am doing really well. Have you heard they are now making an air freshener that you can control with your mind? I have not heard that. Well, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. Wait, what? <laughs> now, to be fair, I was grabbing for my slide whistle. <laughs> and I may have missed one of the keywords, so let's do so, that again. <laughs> have you heard about the, the air fresheners that you can control with your mind? I have not. You know, if you think about it, it makes sense. <laughs> okay. I'd forgotten the... <laughs> oh, I can't even play this anymore. Jeez. Uh... Wow. wow how the how my skills have gotten rusty yes i i had i had gone from air freshener to car in my head and so then i was like did i miss a thing about a penny for cents and then i just realized that i should not try to do more than one thing at a time i think is the lesson i have learned well how oh, are you mark i i'm well my my ankle is healing normally doing all the things um we, you get we, the x-rays next week or the week after? It's it's good. another uh, three weeks. It's four okay. four weeks from when I got the... Did you like how I even tried to hedge yeah, my bets I, with my complete guess? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think I got <laughs> two or three more weeks until they take another set of x-rays. I can now... Oh, you know, it's two weeks because um, I can now take a shower with the foot getting wet oh nice so, so that's that was a victory yesterday oh that's great yeah. now were you able to take you were able to take the cast on and off right when you were laying there or have you pretty much just kept it on uh so the cast came off a couple of weeks ago i now have a boot and so okay. the boot can come on and off uh i i'm allowed to take the boot off if there's no risk of hurting bumping my or, bumping yeah. or you know so i shouldn't be traveling around the room without it but i have once you know those kind of things so uh what so. was what was your skin like after you took the cast off had it been in there long enough to get all disgusting uh pretty disgusting and uh, a little bit smelly the weird part is without moving your foot like literally not flexing your foot for more than two weeks it builds up weird layers of skin that then when i washed it like oozed off it was really disgusting really well cool. I, I i asked that because growing up i had two broken arms so at two different points i had like the 1980s Ugh. full-on cast for you know like six or eight weeks or however right. long it was and i still viscerally remember uh like itching oh, yeah. in the cast with like a chopstick or something like that and just like how amazing that felt but then getting the cast off and seeing that your skin had like blackened and, it, and yeah, it would just kind of slough above, off yeah. when it got wet and it was just so bodies are so weird. They're wacky. So, well, I'm glad you're healing, <sighs> healing well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going smooth. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, how's it going over there? Not too bad. I've I've just been in this general funk, I think, this year. And I think a lot of that, we I think we talked about last time, how I think a lot of that is there's nothing to keep me at that emotional, like, crazy high that was all of 2020 with elections and pandemics and all of that stuff that was keeping kind of at the crest of the wave. 
I think I've kind of tumbled over and I'm just sort of rolling around until yep. I finally, hopefully find the surf somewhere. So we I'm having, I'm having to do that thing though. And I think about this a lot and it's cause it's such a great, um, for mental wellness. Um, and I think I've mentioned it many times on this podcast, that thing that Brian Wilson said, who, uh, who has um, pretty extensive history with, with some pretty bad mental issues. And they asked him, you know, how, like something with depression or with schizophrenia, how do you know when you're falling into it? Cause that's the thing. Like you, right. nobody knows when they're depressed, like all right. of those things you don't realize until much too late. And he's like, well, you have to f- focus on the concrete things. Like, am I brushing my teeth? Am I taking a shower? Am I picking up? And like, am I doing those things? And so I always have to, and I'm, as I'm looking around my house, <laughs> house right now which is just like a disaster i'm like oh maybe i need to kind of kick that up into gear a little bit but um yes one foot in front of the other yep. and we'll all be we'll all be fine so but we did do something exciting uh last week or the week before I yeah can't a couple weeks ago uh we uh you and i were guest lecturers in dr brian turner's class of selling your science engaging diverse audiences across various medias and uh, media uh because media is plural um yes. and uh our friend brian turner has a uh, is a professor out at uh, psu and um it was a class of people in the science classes learning to um be better marketers of science basically of like how to share science outside of the walls of laboratories and and academia and uh and so we had just a really good discussion you know the the market podcast isn't the pinnacle of scientific (laughs) broadcast but i i think that we try to make uh science interesting and we try to expose and and learn ourselves and and help uh expand our audience's knowledge of right. scientific stuff and and that that was the the topic and the goal yeah and, it was and it was, was really, really fun great. and now i can now i can add to my resume college ad, adjunct <laughs> professor or some <laughs> bullshit to make myself sound exactly. well the way i'll fold that in so i mean i do have you know, teaching experience from Sunday school and from mad science and from a lot of different. So now I can say has taught people from the ages of what, well, you know, three it's... to college, you know, science majors or whatever. And that's how it will be folded in. That's yep. truthful, but I'm not resting too much, <laughs> hoping they're not going to ask too much about that last one. So, but yeah, that was really fun. And um, obviously the market podcast is not aimed at scientists and people who already know a ton about science it's toward that broader audience of people who are interested but uh, for whatever reason um aren't science experts so yeah that was that was super fun so that was great do you, do you thank uh, you for listening to the mark and todd cast we'll be here next week <laughs> and scene i would um, try to play the slide whistle again but apparently i can't even do can't. that anymore either uh you want to discuss some new stuff i do and finally i think i'll i'll get to experience what you experience often and, and that is cold reading things that just <laughs> pop up next in our thing so cool i'm very excited so. uh so the world's largest iceberg has just broken off of uh, antarctica so there's a new big berg floating around antarctica Uh, The ESA, the European Space Agency, said Wednesday that a huge chunk of ice has broken off from the Rona ice shelf into the Weddell Sea and formed the world's largest iceberg. Fake names. Fake names. They totally made them up. And um, when they say big, it's big. So it's 1,668 square miles, which is, of course, bigger than the state of Rhode Island, which is... (laughs) The only measurement that we have around here and um, measures 106 miles long and 15 miles wide. Uh, It's bigger than the Spanish island of Mallorca. And if you prefer your measurements in American, bigger than the state of Rhode (laughs) Island and around five times 
the size of New York City. Jeez. Now, did you add that Rhode Island thing, or was that already in the article? That was already in the article. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> That's how we measure things. Football uh, fields and Rhode Islands. That is so funny. And, Man, and, five uh, the Rhode, times the size of New York City. I, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a big one. So we were joking about Rhode Island a, a couple weeks ago because I was kind of bored and sitting uh, aside. And we always talk. We always hear about like the world is overcrowding and you won't. And so I remember somebody saying, well, you know, the world really isn't overcrowding. You can totally fit everybody inside the the state of Rhode Island, uh, everybody in the world. And I wanted to like <laughs> test the math on that. And so I said, OK, well, if a six foot radius, a, a six foot by six foot square is social distancing. So. I can have a six by six square. That's me existing without touching someone else. There's seven million, seven billion people in the world, or whatever the the number was, and I I calculated towards uh, 2023, just because that's the next goal that they they were measure of like we'll have eight billion people at that time, and so you could fit three times more than three times the population of the earth on Rhode Island with six foot squares, everybody. Holy cow. Three so that means that you could probably put four times <laughs> the population of the planet on this fucking iceberg. <laughs> and so it's a big iceberg. And uh, I'm sensing an opportunity <laughs> of some sort to just kick a lot of people out to see <laughs> yes <laughs> yes so, wow yeah. that is kind of blowing my mind <sighs> there there are a lot of people on earth and i i rubbed against most of them in my trips to china <laughs> uh, and, and going to shanghai disneyland uh, but <laughs> think of how many people we could fit in like wyoming and everyone gets property a, totally <laughs> uh, totally everybody gets an acre that is crazy and you're, you're yeah or montana you know montana's big montana's big number country. four alaska wow. let's just put everybody in alaska there we go it's done <laughs> the flat state the, <laughs> the flat habitable state of alaska <laughs> okay um <coughs> let's see so you want to talk about the Enchanted Forest? Yeah. So I had a story. Um, we've been kind of following the Enchanted Forest throughout the um, shutdown of everything and uh, its GoFundMes and its and its reopenings and its selling and stuff like that. And um, so, uh, well, and then, of course, it was scheduled uh, March 19th to reopen after it had a successful GoFundMe for almost a half a million dollars. And then on February 14th was the huge ice storm that um, – really impacted the enchanted forest because it's like all old growth forest. Right. <laughs> and so all of that cleanup needed and they scheduled the reopening for May 22, but now they have canceled the reopening um, because quote, following state guidelines, the park had announced the visitors would be required to wear masks, masks unless they chose to show their vaccination card. Uh, the business then received a deluge of social media comments and phone calls from people who disagreed with the mask mandate and that they needed to show the card. So um, they didn't want all this drama and people showing up and being crazy. So they just have postponed it again. Um, and they said, we feel like the mandate uh, that exists is clear. We're trying to maneuver how to operate a business, but operate it safely where everyone can coexist. And that isn't in the cards right now. So so currently tickets are not available. I went onto the website about a half an hour ago and just tried to like Man. see if tickets are available. I, I mean, they're they're such a charming Oregon institution, and we've talked about them before, and and we've been there. Uh, and the the patriarch of the family still alive, still brings out a wrench and fixes things all the time. He's seen around the park. He's like a hundred years old and, and <laughs> super cool guy. And the family is just trying to make this. Work. really charming thing work and so they've been 
working their tails off. They did GoFundMe and an auction that they did and just just all the things. And they really have been beat down and beat down and beat down. They just keep rising up. And then once they rose up, the the social media attacks and death threats and and craziness of like if you try to make me show my vaccination card i you know you are stealing my liberties uh is just by the way here is my license to verify my credit card that i'm using (laughs) on this phone that is pinpointing my (laughs) yeah i mean especially for something like so wholesome to have to be like the victim of the kind of society that we have built around just being pissed off at each other all the time and yeah. not coming together. So that, that sucks. <laughs> totally sucks. Um, if you can do the new technology one, I will yep. talk about the five cool. Oregon counties. Cool, cool. Oh yeah. So from my alma mater of Washington state university in Pullman, Washington, researchers have developed an innovative way to convert plastics to ingredients for jet fuel and other various products, making it easier and more cost effective to reuse plastics. Um, now they kind of buried the lead. They didn't even include, uh, in the, in that first line there that they could do this in an hour. So the researchers, uh, in their react, the researchers in their reaction, uh, they they were able to create a sustainable chemical reaction oh, okay, uh, okay, okay. that that does this conversion by adding a catalyst to okay. the plastics. So in their experiments, they were able to convert ninety percent of plastic to jet fuel and other val- uh, valuable hydrocarbon products within an hour at moderate temperatures, and to easily fine tune the process to create the products they want. Quote, in the recycling industry, the cost of recycling is key. They said this would this work in a is a milestone for us to advance this new technology to commercialization. So um, obviously our plastic problem is huge and the way we're trying to melt it and remold it and stuff like that is um, very limiting. And only she's Louise, only about nine percent of plastics in the United States uh, are recycled every year. Wow. So yep. in their work, the WSU researchers developed a catalyst process to efficiently convert uh, polyethylene to jet fuel. Uh, polyethylene is the number one plastic and most commonly used from plastic bags to plastic milk jug- jugs to shampoo bottles to piping to wood plastic composite lumber and plastic furniture. So that is really cool. Yeah, and and the uh, the recycling industry is a big scam. Uh, in in general, and we should I w- probably I was do a deep dive thinking, on that. Well, we we have done a deep dive on yeah. recycling before, uh, and came to that very conclusion. But I've been kind of thinking about recycling as kind of a microcosm of our nation's problem at large, and that is that there is a good idea. Like everyone would agree, wow, yeah, reusing our plastic stuff would be awesome. Let's do that. We do it in a way that is does not work, costs too much money, is pointless so that people then say, oh, recycling is stupid. Let's not do that. So instead of a recycling is good, but we but there's got to be a better way, it becomes recycling versus this is stupid. Let's just throw everything away. And it loses. I like I feel like oftentimes in this country we're we become against the thing instead of against doing the thing that way and finding a better way because that's harder and (laughs) i (laughs) tell you you just described the the medical industry within within the united states or totally totally yeah that's exactly right because it's like oh we want medicine for all no, we don't. Let's just keep the way we're doing it, which is stupid and pointless and doesn't work at all. So anyway, human nature. Uh, you can put all those insurance companies out of business. Oh, no. Maybe they could um, get a second job or go donate some plasma or cancel their Netflix account. I mean, all the perfectly reasonable ways I, as a poor person, am told to climb the ladder. They should be able to do with their work ethic. I mean, they're going to be billionaires again. Exactly. With how hard they work. Much harder than everyone else. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. What were we doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, anywhere so that's where my mental state has been lately <laughs> nice well five oregon counties have voted to explore joining idaho and getting the heck out of oregon so five eastern oregon co- uh, counties voted on tuesday to consider joining idaho the biggest victory to date for the movement to split off from the democrat controlled blue state by redrawing state lines and so uh, there's an organization called Citizens for Greater Idaho, and um, and so I went on to their website, and it is fun, um, like, nuanced, I'm sure, nuanced. So they have an FAQ, and if you Ooh. want some entertainment, I I would just just go onto their FAQ. It's it's clearly and un unapologetically like we want to split off because we hate liberals and uh and we want to take back uh our our conservative values and get rid of the marijuana and the crime and and minimum wage and epa guidelines well not epa but just state guidelines for emissions uh and and all those things are called out of like you can join us where we won't have a minimum wage and so you won't be barred from entry into uh you know small businesses because they haven't failed because of uh, all that so and the 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 kicker one i i read to uh, my husband nick and and he he laughed so so this this is an actual faq direct quote from their website So why don't we just take a stand? The question, the FAQ, the question of the FAQ is, why don't we just take a stand and take our state back? We can persuade people to think like us. And their response is, we tried that. Only 25% of Oregonians who are registered to vote are registered Republicans. Wow. Each one only gets one vote, no matter how hard they vote, no matter how much they care. It's unlikely that an election that gets high turnout from the right would not get high turnout from the left. We know from the last 38 years of history, the last Republican governor of Oregon was elected 38 years ago. The left has far more control over the ways that Oregonians are educated and persuaded than the right does. They control (laughs) K-12, They control universities, Facebook, Google, and the media, and newspapers. Plus, Californians are moving in faster than you can educate them. Liberals love, quote, Quote. educating voters, too. So that that is the summation of of the movement, is uh, we want to keep our guns and pay higher taxes uh, in as republicans and uh get out of the liberal and so is one of their is one of their faqs how will we survive without all of the tax money from the bigger cities that pay for everything that we are on uh that's not discussed oh oh that's a shame that's that's too bad uh i've been so irritated specific well just in general lately but uh irritated about the whole like liberal indoctrination at universities and I'm just like I can't anymore I'm just done but yeah it's it's funny because obviously this discussion has been happening in California for I don't know 50 100 years where the northern northern California is going to break off and they're going to either be their own thing or join the other eastern parts of washington and oregon to form cascadia and like blah 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 and it's like shit or get off the pot then you know what do it fine bye we'll buy your all the crops we'll still do business with you but you're on your own and yep it's just such a such a hollow hollow promise it, it's it like is... it's like alec baldwin moving to canada it's like do it then fine do it bye we'll be fine without you we'll be just fine um this is actually an interesting proposal. They're they're looking at redrawing Idaho boundaries instead of 
creating a new state. Sure. Which is much easier to happen. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, in in 1958, there was uh, a state line moved uh, like 20 feet. <laughs> so they, they have By their, that like, same farmer just, from last <laughs> week. <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing over here? <laughs> and... Um, uh, it hasn't been until since the mid 1800s that a whole county was absorbed and moved and West Virginia and Virginia had some lines redrawn in the middle 1800s and, and stuff. So so there is precedent. Uh, it's not an act of Congress in order to happen. Uh, the states kind of get together and go, yeah, let's do this. Uh, and if you want some some reading. <laughs> Uh, go to the FAQ. It's it's pretty amazing. That's funny. That would also make Idaho shaped like a middle finger, because instead of the instead of the panhandle, it would have two two things two on lobes. each side. Yep, it really would. That would I would almost vote in favor just for that, just because the whole thing is just such an fu anyway. But that would be amazing. It does, yeah. And so basically, the shape of Oregon, if you took the upper left the the west the northwest corner of oregon and just uh section that quarter off <laughs> the rest would be idaho and so yeah. uh, all, all the way down the we wouldn't yes. be that we probably wouldn't be the fifth biggest state then which would be a bummer yeah no we definitely would not anyway we, well we, they could measure measure <laughs> things in terms of oregon's instead of rhode island's <laughs> Uh, well, moving on, we always like to, from wombats to this story, keep keep abreast on anuses, which I'm hoping my mom and dad uh, like finally convinced one of their friends on the road trip that we're on. Oh, you should listen to my son's science science podcast. And now they're hearing Japanese scientists have discovered that some mammals can breathe through their anuses, opening the door for a new type of treatment. For human patients with respiratory conditions. Um, so animals like loaches, catfishes, and orb-weaving spiders are all, no all known to breathe through their guts when the supply of oxygen in the environments get scarce. So now top reachers in Tokyo have shown that oxygen can be delivered into the bloodstreams of mice, rats, and pigs via their anuses. The technique, known as enteral ventilation, may sound a bit odd, but... Um, <laughs> The, uh, they go on to say, quote, the rectum has a mesh. Uh, <laughs> Barely newer. Do not. Okay, thanks. The rectum has a mesh of fine blood vessels just beneath the surface of its lining, which means that drugs can be administered uh, and are readily absorbed into the bloodstream, which, uh, of course, anyone that's ever been in a frat probably knows that. <laughs> yes, you can get drunk that way. Yes. Uh, I was not in a frat. Of note, so um, that made us wonder whether oxygen could be delivered in the bloodstream that same way. So we used experimental models of respiratory failures in mice, pigs, and rats to try out two methods: delivering oxygen into the oxygen into the rectum in gas form, or infusing an oxygen-rich liquid via the same route. So um, obviously, this story is kind of goofy, but for uh, patients that are having trouble with their lungs breathing on their own, figuring out a different way to make sure that they have a steady oxygen supply is something that's important and would be of value. So um, they're going to expand some tests and see if enteral ventilation may be right for you. So EVA. EVA. <laughs> Ask for it by name. That's cool. something That's something like one of the hippie oxygen bars are now going to. Also offer. <laughs> Comes the free poopery. Um, <laughs> spritz. Um, cool. So, the ancient Austra Australian Aboriginal memory tool has been found to be superior to the memory palace. I learning. know. So controversy. Controversy on the, on the heels of our memory palace episode. <laughs> So um, an ancient Aboriginal memorization technique has been proven to be superior to the ancient Greek memory palace technique for recalling and retaining factual information. Now, when they say proven, uh, they literally used a total of 30 cases. Right? <laughs> and so 
So proven isn't necessarily the, the thing, but this uh, small sample study has suggests. shown suggests that uh, that there's benefits to the Aboriginal method. And so the what <clears throat> basically what uh, the if you don't recall the Memory Palace episode, <laughs> Memory Palace episode uh, talked about how uh, in order to memorize things, you can create a uh, kind of a tour of uh, a space that you are already familiar with, like your home. And as you walk into the door of your home, you see the cabinet by the door and you see the five of clubs next to that and and that helps you memorize by seeing them visually in your mind looking through the memory palace and establishing where these things are then you can kind of rewalk through the mental tour of wherever the memory palace was whether that's your home or some fictitious place and uh, recall those things and and there's I've uh, actually I've actually been using that technique to remember things from the grocery store. Like I'll picture like when I need it, I'll be like, oh, I get this in the uh, in the bath section or the toothpaste section. <laughs> and then like to remember that because I don't write it down like a normal person. I'll be like, I remember I was standing in the toothpaste section of the store. Oh, that's right. I need Listerine strips. And it totally works. Because I'm like, I needed two things from that section. I needed something from the deli. What were those? Computer, add shampoo to my <laughs> shopping list. Shampoo added to your shopping list. That's all I do. <laughs> so. so uh, well, my memory is going to be sharper when I'm old. So what the aboriginals do, yeah. it's different. It's, it's basically the memory palace technique with a little twist. And so they develop a narrative story around the items that they're placing in the memory palace and so by saying that you know apples are better than oranges what they're really saying is apples with the better uh with the with the better uh skin is a better apple than this other <laughs> apple uh and and so the aboriginal technique is the memory palace technique with a little added narrative uh, around it and so okay. they they build stories have songs uh those kind of things and so it's uh they've been able you know the aboriginal tribes have been around for fifty thousand years which predates the extinction extinction of neanderthals and and uh, w which were around until about forty thousand years ago and so um they were able to pass on hunting information and uh you know uh history of their tribe and and everything over millennia using the uh the twist on the memory palace technique wow that's yeah, interesting really cool. i'll have to come up with narrative stories about toothpaste now <laughs> to remember that at the, at the... <laughs> exactly all right, so I'm sorry that you had to edit this next one down because I realized after I sent it to you, it was one of those like first person stories, like one of the recipe re recipe stories where it starts off in their childhood, and you're like, I just need to know how to make white rice. So the story is we've been evolving for millions of years. So why are our bodies so flawed? So uh, the name, the theme of this new book called Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't, is that we experience these and other embodied challenges, teeth that require braces, feet that acquire bunions, or knees that blow out, not despite of evolution, but because of it. Uh, we are animals, and animals is early evolution in the ocean, and our primitive lineages transitions from the tree to the ground continue to affect how our bodies function and break down. So... A biologist at Lewis, Lewis Clark State College, which I don't think is ours, uh, who specializes in anatomy and evolution, uh, the author of this, whose name is Bezerides, Bezerides, uh, has written a fantastic informative book, uh, blah, blah, blah. So one of the quotes from the book is, the human foot is made up a whole, a whole gob of bones, <laughs> which maybe I should read this book. Um, but yeah, it sounds like um, since if I'm getting this right, so kind of going back to that that sentence, 
we experience evolution and other challenges uh, with our bodies breaking down, not because, despite of evolution, but because of it. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I I did chop this down maybe a little bit too aggressively. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There was a section in there about how our eyeballs have evolved. Like for 100 million years, eyeballs were only used underwater. Uh, And as the creatures evolved from uh, only ocean bearing to going onto land, the eyeball kind of stayed the same and had minor modifications to it, but it's not really a great tool for being out in the open air. And so there's been, there's needed modifications to make it work out of air. But if they were to evolve outside of water, uh, they would have evolved very differently. And so they are a product of the fact that we came from water, not because they're great open air kind of things. Those poor first people that had to walk around with no eyelids and they get out of the water and their eyes just like dry out and they can't do anything (laughs) as their eyeballs just shrivel up. (laughs) Okay, well, the last story here uh, from our very own Lake Oswego, a rare rock was discovered at an Oregon construction site. Um, Speaking of first-person stories. It was a normal day on the job for Jacob Parker, (laughs) says this article. Uh, He was on a construction crew working on the building of the new Lake Ridge Middle School, but one of the rocks they excavated caught his eye. I had no clue what it was. I used a rock identifier app to try and identify it, which is pretty great. Uh, The app told him that the rock might be radioactive. (laughs) It's like rock WebMD. (laughs) Exactly. You have cancer cancer. for looking at this rock. (laughs) Uh, So he called the local geologist from Portland State University. uh, And basically, Scott Burns from Portland State University said, basically, this is just a very, very rare rock. So it is from east of the Cascades, carried here by the Missoula Missoula floods at least 15,000 years ago. Only uh, one other rock like it has been found in our area. So we did talk uh, a weeks ago about the um, meteorite that was found in Westland that was also carried by those floods. But um. So this is the only the second one. What? And, and they don't know where the first one is. Well, how do they know there's a first one? Because it was recorded in somebody's geologic journal a hundred years ago. Oh. And that's all they have. There's no other record. Weird. Of it. So this is a pretty sizable rock. I mean, it's the size yep. of. It's 2,000 pounds. It's like a third a... of a Rhode Island. <laughs> It's like 2,000 pounds. And it's a, it's a yellowish rock. So, yeah, 2,000 yeah. 2, pounds. And it's going to the Tualatin Heritage Center to join an Ice Age flood exhibit. I believe the Tualatin Heritage Center is over by where uh, Not Nerd host Nate Heath and uh, his wife Chelsea uh, live, I think, over by Cabela's somewhere. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, and students got to bring pieces of the rock home with them. So oh, yeah, all the, cool. All the kids got a little chunk of the rock. Nice. Well. Hopefully the rock it wasn't is... too radioactive. <laughs> the rock is known as a rhyolite and is created by layers of cooling lava close to the Earth's surface. So <laughs> very cool. cool. Well, anything else before we kind of dive into no. our topic today? So uh, when we were on uh, the the um, Zoom call, which is what we did our, um, our university teaching <laughs> a couple <laughs> weeks ago, we were talking uh, – one of the – don't remember if they asked or if we just brought up like how we think of topics to do. And I said, one of the things I do is throughout the week, I'll just write notes down in my phone of things that I think are interesting and stuff like that. And so uh, I looked over that this week to see if, um, see some of the things that I had typed down. One of the, which, which I thought was going to be more interesting, which was the surprising history of vending machines, uh, which starts off interesting and goes nowhere because it starts off interesting because the first vending coin operated vending machine. When do you think that first kind of appeared somewhere? The first I mean, coin operated vending machine. So you uh, put a coin in and it 19, gives you something. 1930. Close. Close. It was from the Sumerian era. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> how many hundreds of years ago? Thousands of years ago? Thousands of years ago. And basically what it was is that it was at the entrance to a temple where you were going to get holy water. And it was kind of a, a scale type advice where you would put a coin on, which would make the lever flip down. It would fill, open an, open a valve that would fill the other side of the scale with water and then it would deliver that water to the patron or whatever. That's awesome. Which is cool and wildly unadaptable elsewhere because coins back then didn't have to be round. They sometimes weighed the same thing. Nobody else used them except this one area. So it wasn't really an expandable business, but indeed was the very first uh, very first vending machine. So we are not talking about that, sadly. We are going to talk about someone else I had written down, and his name was Captain Robert Smalls. And it turns out that he has a pretty fascinating story and a pretty fascinating life. So um, this is a story. I'll just kind of give you the overview of a um, a former slave who stole a Confederate uh, warship, uh, gained him uh, gained his freedom and then became uh, he went on into some pretty important places of government. So uh, his name was Robert Smalls and he was born in 1839 uh, to his mother, who was a slave and they don't really know who the father is, but they're pretty sure it was the slave owner whose name was Henry McKee. Uh, so his mother lived as a servant in the house, but grew up in the fields. And Robert was favored over the other slaves. And what's interesting, his mother was worried that Robert would grow up not really understanding the real plight of the field slaves. And so she asked for him to be made to do field work and witness things like whipping and all the punishments that went along with that. So um, when he was 12, his mother requested that he uh, be sent to Charleston to be hired out as a day laborer. And uh, so he hung out on the docks a lot, did a lot of uh, work uh, along that way, and eventually worked his way up to the wharves and became a wheelman who was more or less a captain, but since slaves weren't allowed of that title, uh, they were called uh, wheelmans. So he did that for a bunch of years and became really, really knowledgeable about the Charleston Harbor. Um, and uh, during that time, at, at the age of 17, he married Hannah Jones, who was an enslaved hotel maid. Uh, she had uh, she was five years older than him, and she had two pre daughters from a, um, a previous, uh, I don't know what happened to her other uh, to her former husband, but I'm assuming that since he was a slave, probably things did not end well. But she remarried to Smalls. They had a couple other children, um, one of which died at the age of two, but they also had a, a daughter that survived, Elizabeth. So um, during this time, Robert is working on these boats and is trying to purchase the freedom, which is a possibility to do, um, which was about $23,000 in today's money, which back then was $800. And he only had $100. And Saving up 800 would could possibly take decades. So the Civil War actually began out in the harbor on Fort Sumter, uh, which was in Charleston Harbor. So in 1861, Robert Smalls was assigned to steer the CSS Planter, whose duties was to survey waterways, to lay mines, and to deliver dispatches, troops, and supplies. Um, so because he knew the area so well, he was um, pretty much the pilot of it. Um, and he would kind of just go along his way, be a good worker. He appeared content and confident and, and stuff like that. Um, but all the while during the uh, April, um, up until April 1862, uh, he is starting to formulate a plan to figure out how to escape. And so it all comes together on the evening of May 12, 1862. Now it was the usual thing for due to for generals and the captains of the boats, the Confederate captains to go ashore and either sleep like in a hotel or, you know, a, an army barracks as opposed to spending the night on the ship. But on this particular night um, is when he Robert Smalls decided to hatch his plan of escape. So the captains and the crew, the Confederate crew went ashore, leaving uh, Smalls on the crew with a couple of other slaves. And so um uh, before they departed, uh, Robert Smalls asked the captain of the ship if his if the crew's family could visit, which was occasionally allowed. Uh, and when the families arrived, the men revealed the plans to the wives who were not in on the planning. So this is a little um, a little excerpt from a, a piece. Uh, this was the 
first time the women and children had heard of it, although Smalls had told his recently his wife Hannah. So she had known Smalls longed to escape and hadn't realized that he was formulated his plan and intended to execute it. So she was taken aback, but quickly regained her composure and told him, It is a risk, dear, but you and I and our little ones must be free. I will go for where you go, or for where you die, I will die. The other women, however, were less steadfast. They cried and screamed when they learned what they had stumbled into, and the men struggled to quiet uh, quiet them. When the shock had worn off, the women admitted they were glad for their chance of freedom, of course. So, at three in the morning, Smalls and seven of the eight slave crewmen made their previously planned escape to, uh, to the Union blockade ships. Smalls put on the captain's uniform and wore a straw hat similar to the captain's, and he sailed the planter past what was called the Southern Wharf, uh, and stopped to pick up his wife and children who were kind of stashed down down uh, river after they kind of went through that. Oh, we're going to have our wives visit. And then they kind of performatively had the wives get off the boat again and kind of meet them down shore further. So um, Smalls guided the ship past five Confederate harbor forts without incident um, because he also had the checkpoint books. He also knew exactly what the routes were. He had been paying attention to all of this, like Ocean's Eleven style leading up to it so that he had all of his information, had all the ways to contact the shore to make it seem like it was okay and dressed like him. Uh, he copied the captain's mannerisms with from the straw hat and on the deck to fool the Confederate onlookers from the shore. Uh, so this says that about 4.30 a.m., as the nearly free slaves approached Fort Sumter, which was the big fort, their apprehension began to grow. It was the most heavily armed of the forts and tended to be manned by the most suspicious soldiers. One of the men aboard later said, when we drew near to the fort, every man but Robert Smalls fell to his knees, giving away, felt his knees giving away, and the women began crying and praying again. As the USS Planter approached the fort, several men urged Smalls to give it a wide berth, but Smalls refused, saying that such behavior would almost certainly arouse suspicion. So he steered the ship along its normal path and slowly, as if they were merely enjoying the early morning air and in no particular hurry. When Fort Sumner flashed the challenge signal, Smalls again gave the correct hand signals. There was a long pause. The fort didn't immediately res respond, and Smalls then expected their cannon to be cannon fire. But finally, the fort signaled, the fort signaled that all was well, and Smalls sailed his ship out of the harbor. So the alarm did finally raise, but only after the ship was beyond gun range. Um, and instead of heading east towards the island and out toward sea, they headed directly to the Union Navy fleet, which um, as they were doing, they realized, oh, no, we are in a Confederate ship with a Confederate flag. <laughs> Uh, heading towards the Union. Headed towards the Union. So thankfully, uh, Robert Smalls had his wife bring a white sheet on board uh, that they uh, waved around and put up, uh, ran up the flagpole after taking the other one down. And so um, the USS Onward, which was the um, the Union ship, was about to fire on them until they saw the white flags. So um, that then somebody on, from the Union said that they had the gun elevated and someone cried out, I see something that seems like a white flag. As they neared us, we looked in vain to find the face of a white man. When they discovered they did not uh, weren't going to fire, there was a rush of what they called contrabands out on the deck, some uh, which referred to um, the slaves on it. Some dancing, some signal uh, singing, whistling, jumping. Um, and so they were accepted into the uh, into the USS Onward, which was the Union ship. So this makes Smalls uh, very, very famous, and he is actually given a reward for the capture of this ship because the, the ship that he was on, the Confederate ship, had just recently gotten a bunch of uh, cannons and a bunch of ammunition and a bunch of firewood. Uh, they had 200 pounds of uh, ammunition and the code book from the Confederate signals and a map of mines and torpedoes that had been laid in the harbor. So... Um, he was just uh, was just 23 when this happened, Robert Smalls. So he kind of became famous. The reward money he got was $1,500, which is equivalent to about only about $40,000 in 2020. And we'll kind of get back to that because that kind of comes up later. But uh, he becomes uh, very popular. A bunch of new newspapers and magazines uh, write about him. So he goes up to Washington in uh, D.C. in 1862 with a Methodist minister, and they talk to President Lincoln and Secretary of War Edward Stanton. 
and they convinced Stanton and Lincoln to permit black men to fight in the Union. Up until now, they hadn't been able to mobilize troops. There, it wasn't really they weren't allowed to become soldiers anyway. And so finally, Smalls and uh, the uh, minister say that if we sign up black slave uh, former slaves will be able to have bigger numbers and uh so about 5000 african americans were able to enlist just at port royal and i don't have it here but i think something like 100,000 uh african american soldiers were a part of uh the civil war so this was the first time that somebody convinced them hey we can put these people to to help us in a, in our mm-hmm. in our cause so Smalls himself was still technically also not allowed to be a full member of the army and military because he was black, but he pretty much did that same job that, which will of course will also come back later to haunt him. But he worked as a civilian with the Navy until 1863 when he transferred to the army. And so I cut out a lot of just his military work and he was uh, present at 17 major battles and engagements in the civil war. And like there was one story of, he was cap mostly uh he was captaining these ships and the since he wasn't allowed to be the captain captain like there's stories of like the captain captain freaking out and like hiding in the lower deck when they were under fire and like him taking over the boat and steering it to safety and like just doing all of this heroic stuff within uh the battles of the civil war himself so another thing he did during this time was uh teach himself to read and write and uh, schooling was like hugely important important to him and, and making sure that um, other black people were able to also be able to be educated and he gave tons of his money and his notoriety to getting schools like that started and and getting literacy out to people who didn't have access to it. Um, and he also started a streetcar company that uh, all but one person was an African-American uh, that they owned and operated that. Um so in 1864, Smalls was in a streetcar in Philadelphia and was ordered to give his seat to a white passenger. Rather than ride in the open overflow platform, Smalls left the car. This was in, uh, an incident of humiliating, hero- uh, humiliating a heroic veteran and was cited in a debate that resulted in the legislature passing a bill to integrate public transportation in Pennsylvania in 1867. Uh, later in life, when Smalls got sought a Navy pension, he learned that, surprise, black people aren't officially commissioned. So he claimed he had received an official com- uh, commission, but then had lost it in 1883. A bill passed committee to put him on the Navy retired list. Um, but then that was also stopped because he was black. So a special act of Congress in 1897 uh, allowed him to get a pension of back then, which was $30 a month, equal to the pension for Navy captains. So a lot of headway in those areas, too, of, of fighting for soldiers and fighting for rights in that way and integration. So after the Civil War, Smalls returned to his native of Beaufort, South Carolina, where he purchased his former master's house, which nice. is pretty amazing, um, which had been seized in 1863 for refusal to pay taxes. So he and his mother Lydia lived with uh, his mother lived with them for the remainder of her life, and this is kind of skimped over on this. But so he's living in his former master's house, and one night they get a knock at the door, and it's his former master's wife, who is clearly suffering from dementia, thinks she's coming home to her home that she's lived in forever. So Robert Smalls takes her into the house and cares for her until she dies, even letting her stay in the master suite, which was their old, their old, uh, the place where the the wife used to sleep and all that. So takes her in, uh, until her death. So, uh, there was a ton of business ventures. Like I said, um, from the, the, uh, 18 mile rail host, uh, railway horse drawn railway, excuse me. Uh, he was, I like this sentence in 1886. The this just sounds like an alternate universe. So listen to this sentence in 1866. Radical Republicans who controlled Congress overrode President Andrew Johnson's vetoes to pass the Civil Rights Act. So in 1868, the 14th Amendment, which was ratified by the states, 
to extend full citizenship to Americans regardless of race. But I like how radical Republicans overrode the veto to to oh. pass the Civil Rights Act. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, his political affiliation, like we said, which is Republican, which back then was um, the parties had kind of swapped affiliations back in the 1960s. So Republicans back then were um, much different than the Republicans are now and passed laws that granted protections for African-Americans, whereas Democrats who dominated in the South opposed all those measures, um, blah, blah, blah. So he gets into the South Carolina Constitutional Convention and the Republican National Conventions, uh, elected to the South Carolina uh, House of Representatives and uh, passed some civil rights bills. In 1870, uh, he was elected to fill an empty seat in the Senate. And he continued in the Senate, winning the 1872 elections against a guy named W.J. Whipper, uh, where he and the House, he was considered a very good speaker and debater. Uh, the U.S. House representatives he served from 1875 to 1879. Then he goes back to South Carolina's fifth district. Uh, this is also a sentence that could be uh, ripped from today's headlines. The state's legislature at that point gerrymandered district boundaries, thereby including him and his other black kid, black people outside of places uh, with white major majorities. So uh, in 1875, he opposed the transfer of troops out of the South, fearing an effect on such a move on the safety of blacks in the South. So uh, during Reconstruction, he introduced an amendment that, quote, hereafter in the enlistment of men in the army, no distinction whatsoever shall be made on account of race or color. Um, however, it was not considered by Congress. He was the last. <laughs> <laughs> I did of not course. read that sentence the first go through on this. So he was the <laughs> second longest serving African-American member of Congress until the mid 20th century. Um, wow. After the Compromise of 1877, the U.S. government withdrew its remaining forces from the, from South Carolina and other southern states. Conservative Southern, I do like the Bourbon Democrats, who like to call themselves Redeemers, had resorted to violence and election fraud to regain the state legislature. As part of a wide-ranging white effort to reduce African-American political power, Smalls was charged and convicted of taking a bribe that he never took. So the scandal took its political poll and he was defeated um, until 1880, where he was narrowly, um, oh, defeated, where he was narrowly once again defeated. So finally, after 1880, he regained the seat in 1882, um, blah, blah, blah. So he was appointed, he continued into into politics together with five other black politicians he strongly opposed the dominant democratic white delegates as they Im implacably wrote disenfranchised different i'm gonna i'm gonna take a whole nother run at that sentence so <laughs> together with five other black politicians he opposed the democratic white delegates as they wrote disenfranchised <laughs> my tongue has been disenfranchised from my mouth as they wrote disenfranchisement of the state's black citizens into the proposed constitution. So uh, seeking to publicize this blatantly uh, discriminatory exercise of raw racist power, they wrote an article in one of uh, in the New York world and their opposition came to nothing and the new comp constitution was adopted. So as were similar state constitutions across the South. So for many decades, his uh, work, survived legal challenges that reached the U.S. Supreme Court, resulting in both the exclusion of African-Americans from political participation, participation and the crippling of the old guard Republican Party throughout the region. So his legacy, sadly, was um, overturned, it seemed, by frantic white people can, trying to keep their power so in the late 1890s he began to suffer from diabetes and died at the age of 75 in 1883 so um during a lot of that time uh during at one point he had married annie wig because his uh first wife uh, his wife that he was married to had died uh annie smalls um small dies of dot smalls died of malaria and diabetes in 1915 when he was 75 um, he, one of his sons, Robert Smalls was alive until 1970. And actually one of the Ted talks that I was watching is from his great, one of his great grandchildren. Oh, wow. So, um, 
the monument to Smalls and his churchyard uh, is inscribed with a statement that he made to South Carolina, uh, the state Carolina, excuse me, the South Carolina legislature in 1895. And it is, quote, my race needs no special defense for the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal of people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. So that is the story That's of awesome. Robert Smalls, who stole a Confederate slave sh- or a Confederate ship warship and became a, a hero legislature, at least in the North. And I'm hoping that his story will be able to live and continue to inspire people as we fight these yeah. exact same forces that were happening like literally 150 years ago so the fact i i just think of think of any 23 year old and and try think of me i have accomplished nothing in life let alone hijack a warship to guarantee the freedom of of my loved ones right right um but it made some like really sound decisions to you know uh his his crew is like no 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 make a wide berth around sumter uh so they can't see you yep. and he's like if you do that they'll know that you're dodging them yeah. you you gotta act normal he is the george and so, clooney or and or brad pitt of this scenario so, of the ocean's 11 totally. scenario yeah so i yeah uh, like i said he laid low to make sure he knew all the routes which then of course made him valuable not just because of what he was delivering but of what he knew um and all that stuff and how he was able to parlay that so what a story he has so i i super encourage you i even had to cut just a ton of stuff out of of this just to kind of make it a a shorter more more palatable version but i highly recommend um looking more into the story of there's even a drunk history which of course just focuses on their on their little escape from uh, uh the ship which is kind of a funny little thing but his whole his story as a whole is is just incredible so there is that nice i don't know if there are any songs let's see what youtube comes up robert small's song so I will be pl- <laughs> this is promising because I'm going to be playing us out with something called Robert's Forever Robert Smalls featuring Jamarco official music video, which has 369 views. So I am, I'm assuming this is going to be amazing until they get the market podcast bump the bump and, and go, go viral. Now. So this is this is. Uh, Robert Smalls, this is his name, sadly. This will not be about the historical Robert Smalls, but this Robert Smalls is back (laughs) with another one featuring, this is what it says, Robert Smalls is back with another one featuring Zimbabwe's finest gospel singer, bringing you nothing but good motivational lyrics. So that's, that sounds like that will be great. So anything, any parting thoughts, Mark? I don't, I don't think so. Like we're, we're solidly in spring the uh the air is warming up and um i'm i'm pumped about about this uh coming year yes yes everything is uphill from here i say knowing that's probably not true (laughs) what kind of what kind of attitude is that i need some good nothing but good motivational lyrics from jamarco Featuring Zimbabwe's finest gospel choir. So forever, Robert Smalls. We will talk to everyone later. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. And uh, thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. Goodbye. Bye. I do this for my family. And the people that I love. I do this for my legacy. And the presence from my bar. I'll do it forever and never, whenever, forever. 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 Who tell us this? You tell me, Becca, no, my sister.
Lisa Benyelisa, Besitima Asosensuse, Kutiamaniki Niki Kachonga Mubano Kutia, Zindala Zombi Nikawiagin, Veli Puka, Itapanginta Bandichanula and Tanda Matapa Kunzi Makumia Makubo, Vikuba Kala Nensan and Geta Ikatele Ziko, Imali Milimpigo, Ibanga Tindi, Yasanya Pasafika Zones Ningo. No cobuta lui pusha, no cobuta lui susa. I've been around too long, giving people strength when they play my song. No need to go and just give up. I've been around in the middle of Caesar, the Maladella, your pill. No kelo mama, dim tenge, dimote, mum sing. Was in the Tyler campaign, when they love on a mapupa me pill. I do this for life, this is my life. Ain't gonna give up or quit it, I do this forever. When you relate to the top, because it's not just a dream. The music is something in me. In everything you do, you got to be strong. And the blessing that I will bring. Do we fall?